0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey, everybody. I, I got a fun one today. You know, for a change. David Letterman is my guest. David Letterman. And you will enjoy it. So there... Um, so much uh, bleak stuff happening, and I thought I'd give you a bit of a respite uh, from the bleak stuff. But first, some bleak stuff. Uh, the day after the tragic shootings in Boulder, just a few days after the tragic shootings in Atlanta, there was a Judiciary Committee hearing, my old committee, on, on guns. These hearings, of course, are scheduled well in advance. Nevertheless. Here's Ted Cruz at that hearing.
3: Every time there's a shooting, we play this ridiculous theater where this committee gets together and proposes a bunch of laws that would do nothing to stop these murders.
0: Again, uh, Cruz knows that this hearing was planned well before Atlanta and Boulder. And, and here's the thing. Um, I was in the Senate in 2017 Uh, on the judiciary, and I don't recall having 346 of these hearings because uh, that's how many mass shootings we had in that year in the United States. Now he goes on.
3: What happens in this committee after every mass shooting is Democrats propose taking away guns from law-abiding citizens because that's their political objective. But what they propose, not only does it not reduce crime, it makes it worse.
0: Okay. A uh, couple things. The only guns we keep talking about taking away are the kind of assault weapons uh, that the killer in, in Boulder used, a, a semi-automatic assault weapon. We, we don't want to take guns away from law-abiding citizens. You know, we do want background checks on people so that non-law-abiding citizens, um, uh, maybe you have had a history of domestic violence or of um, mental illness... Uh, You know, citizens who shouldn't have guns. We want to make sure they don't have guns. But let me ask Ted Cruz something. When was one of these mass murders stopped by one of these law-abiding citizens with a gun? Well, yet another mass shooting prevented today in a McDonald's when a madman with an AR-15 was gunned down by several law-abiding customers who routinely carry their AR-15s to the McDonald's for just such an occasion. You know, if that had ever happened once, we'd hear about it from Ted Cruz every time there's a shooting, wouldn't we? That's, that's, nothing like that has ever happened. Okay, voting rights. Uh, in Georgia, it will now be a crime to bring water to someone waiting in line to vote, say on a hot Georgia summer primary day, waiting uh, for hour upon hour under a sweltering sun in line in a black neighborhood where they deliberately have only one polling place. Uh, if you gave someone in that line a bottle of water, well, be prepared to do some hard time. And how about letting the state legislature overrule the state secretary of state? That way, You know, instead of asking Raffensperger for the 11,870 votes, Trump could have just gone right to the Republican Speaker of the House. 11,870? I'll give you (laughs) 100,000! Republicans across the country have over 250 voter suppression bills in over 40 states. Republicans are saying, we just can't win unless we cheat. We have to pass Senate Bill 1, the companion to H.R. 1 in the House, or, at the very least, a more narrowly tailored bill to tell Americans what exactly is going on here. And that will mean addressing the filibuster, which I've talked about here and will continue to talk about. But the villain here is Chief Justice John Roberts, who cast the deciding vote and wrote the opinion on Shelby County which eliminated the Section 5 pre-clearance requirement of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Section 5 prohibits certain states and local governments that have a history of discrimination against protected minorities. It prevents them from implementing any change affecting voting without receiving, first, pre-approval from the U.S. Attorney General uh, or or the uh, U.S. Circuit Court for D.C. And... John Roberts got rid of that. Shame on him. Now, we will be revisiting that also on this podcast. One last thing. Mark Zuckerberg testified to a um, House committee uh, Thursday last week, along with the chief executives of uh, Google and Twitter, about Section 230. Section 230 was part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, when the Internet was uh, in its infancy. Section 230 provides immunity to website platforms from uh, third-party content that they post. Now, basically, it says these platforms are platforms and not publishers of content and therefore can't be held responsible for that content. And of course, this is a complicated issue. We have a First Amendment in our country that is sacred and uh, essential to a free society. But When this was written in 1996, its authors could hardly envision all the ramifications of these uh, platforms having no responsibility for the pernicious and dangerous content that they very deliberately post to keep people on the platform. Because keeping people on Facebook to be advertised to is their entire business model. I've discussed this a little before, and, and I will do another podcast on this very soon. Because this is why we had people storming the Capitol on January 6th. It's the reason we have two universes of information in this country, information and disinformation. Here's the thing. Facebook uses algorithms designed to keep you on Facebook. This is AI, artificial intelligence. Their AI knows you better than you know you. It knows every click you've ever made. It knows every click that every one of its 2 billion users has ever made. Every one of its 2 billion users gets their own feed designed with one and only one intention to keep you on Facebook. Their AI is getting constantly smarter. It knows what to feed you to keep you on Facebook. That's all they do. Facebook doesn't really do anything else. So this idea, oh my gosh, we have no idea how to control the disinformation people are getting on our platform. We have no clue who gets QAnon bullshit. Nah, we Yes, you do. In fact, that's all you do. That's the only thing you do. <laughs> Your only business is feeding the right content to each user at exactly the right moment to maximize their time on your platform. You do nothing else. And guess what, Mark Zuckerberg? You can't police yourself. So a lot of heavy stuff going down, and I just touched on some of it. But let's have fun. Let's have fun. I am a great admirer of David Letterman. As you will see, we are friends, and I hope that you will enjoy this one. You know, for a change.
2: Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles.
0: I remember a joke you told very early on, I think probably in one of your first, or maybe the first Tonight Show appearance on Carson, where you talked about being a weatherman uh, in, in, what, Indianapolis?
3: Indianapolis, yes, sir. WLWI.
0: Right. Channel 15. And, and, and I believe the joke was about, uh, something about, uh, as weatherman, I was just one heartbeat away from being anchor. That was I just that that's the joke, right? Uh, yeah,
3: I guess so. I don't, uh, but thank you. I you mean, don't I'm remember that going. joke, huh? I don't remember. it. Wow
0: that that to me was like a defining joke when I saw that.
3: I, I remember uh, Al that at one point I had worked at the television station uh, three or four years uh, during and out of college, and I realized if I didn't do something, I was going to spend my adult life in Indianapolis where. I was born and raised, so I started looking around in Broadcast Magazine. They would have uh, ads for for jobs in uh, the back, and and I answered an ad for I think KSTP, oh uh, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, yeah, yeah, uh, Edina, I believe it was in in Edina, and they they were looking for a weatherman, and so um, I sent them a tape, and they said, oh sure, this is fine, come on up, and we'd like to talk to you. So uh, on my day (laughs) off, I flew from Indianapolis to Minneapolis and went in and they had me do a live uh, audition or a a taped audition in their uh, studio and so forth. Then I talked to the general manager and on and on and on and everything seemed to be fine. And the, the money was to a penny exactly what I was making in Indianapolis. So I thought, okay, well, you know that's that's not a factor that's you know it's at least it's not less and i'm now moving from a position of weekend weatherman which i was in indianapolis to full time weatherman and i i started to think about the the weather uh <laughs> is is different in indianapolis than it is in minneapolis mm-hmm. and in in a way was that
0: intimidating yes
3: yes it was intimidating <laughs> So I, I'm now rolling the facts around, same money, um, m- m- people would be uh, really, really expecting me to know what I was talking about, which is intimidating, because I didn't know what I was talking about even in Indianapolis, and, but nobody really cared.
0: A lot of weathermen, TV weathermen are, uh, and women, uh, weather women, are meteorologists.
3: Well, now, sure, now I think somebody <laughs> stepped in and said you can't you can't give this to high schoolers and weather enthusiasts. You have to have licensed meteorologists, and you have to have uh, the the radar, and you have to have team coverage.
0: <laughs> What's funny to me is that. You were saying, like, I'm going to get stuck here in Indianapolis as a weatherman. Or it was more about Indianapolis than about being a weatherman. Because you were just perfectly, <laughs> what you're looking at is another weatherman job.
3: Yes, that's, that's right. <laughs> I, I, but I knew, I knew I, if I didn't make a move, the inertia, oh, I see. which was, uh, was uh, building up around me, would prevail. So uh, on the way uh, home, they're driving me from the station in Edina. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the uh, airport, and I see these uh, row after row after row, multi-leveled row after row of, of slat-like fences that were along uh, each side of the, uh, the the road that took you to the airfield. And I said to the driver, "I said, geez, what what is this uh, mile after mile after mile of uh, the fencing going up?" And he said, "And this this was in uh, September, early October." And he said, "Oh." Those are the snow fences, right? And right then, I said to myself, "I'll be staying in Indianapolis."
0: You're intimidated <laughs> by having a report on snow or having to live with the snow. Which was it?
3: Well, I just, I just recognized I wasn't up to the task of having that responsibility, and I, you know, it would take me two or three years to learn the names of the communities and and uh, <laughs> the people who wanted to. You know, lining up one of the... Uh, I think you were selling
0: it. yourself short, frankly. I think well, you could have know. handled it. and But nevertheless, whatever you did, you made you made some good choices along the well,
3: way. Well, I don't know. We, we make choices, don't we? Now, now, here's what I've always been curious about you, Al, because uh, you and Tom, I my rough uh, understanding of your history at the Comedy Store was you guys were there for a time but mm-hmm. left the year before I arrived.
0: That's exactly right. So
3: I only knew of you, but I didn't see you and Tom together on stage at the comedy store. Now, did that in fact happen?
0: Exactly. You're exactly right. Uh, Franken and Davis had been comedy store regulars. In fact, Franny was a cocktail waitress. My wife was a cocktail waitress at the comedy store. Mm -hmm. And she came East with me when I got, Tom and I got the job at Saturday night live in 1975. And uh, we missed you. I think we it was just barely missed each other. And so Franny came with me, but my sister-in-law, Carla, was also a waitress there. And she mm-hmm. told me, soon after you arrived, she said, there's this guy, David Letterman, who's fantastic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you, you know.
3: We're that's, that's nice of her. But well, she's I got
0: was... really good taste. My sister-in-law, uh, Carla.
3: So, so, Al, you guys were there for the debut season of SNL?
0: That's right. We were. Yeah. We were there the first meeting in the office. And how did, how did you get the gig? We were the only writers who were hired whom Lorne hadn't met. Mm-hmm. An agent, a William Morris agent, saw us at the comedy store. Who, who was the agent? Herb Karp. Oh, Herb Carp was everyone's <laughs> first agent. He said, you guys, are, we, I like your material. You're really good writers. Would you like a job writing? And we said, yeah, but we're not right for any show. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only sh- variety, comedy variety shows are, are are The Tonight Show. We weren't right for that because it was basically jokes and then some of these Mighty Carson art player sketches, which were kind of corny, right?
3: I think they purposely so.
0: Yes, yes. And that was very Carson. So we said that we can't do that. And the only other, other comedy variety shows that were on were Carol Burnett, which was a really mm-hmm. good show, but we were just wrong generationally. Of the carol burnett show right and the other show that was on comedy variety show was sunny and Cher, and that was crap as you mm-hmm. may remember
3: now what had the
0: smothers brothers come and gone by then uh, i think so yeah 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 they got canceled because they were so controversial do you remember, That's right. remember that steve martin yeah. wrote for them right
3: yeah, that would uh, you uh, guys would have been more uh, attuned, more comfortable there had it had it worked chronologically.
0: Yes, yes, we, but but there was nothing at that point. So Herb <laughs> said, "This is what he said. Well, why don't you just write stuff for a show that you would like to be on mm-hmm. that you'd like to see?" We wrote a uh, a news show. It was the the uh, it was a local newscast. The night of the day of World War Three. That was one thing we wrote. <laughs> And we wrote a commercial parody, and we wrote a kind of conceptual film, and then we wrote another, we wrote a sketch that was a parody of Sonny and Cher. And then Lorne hired us based on this package, which was 14 pages long. And the reason I remember this is that there was a period where early on at SNL, and you've read submissions, right? You've read millions of submissions from writers, right? And there Mm -hmm. are some writers who think that the more they write... <laughs> the more likely you are to hire them, mm-hmm. and how long does it take you to read a submission before you go yes or no? I mean,
3: well, I I, uh, I, I share your uh, experience here because the longer it is, you uh, b- even before you take the title page off, you're fatigued, and I I could usually tell within a page if they submit. Oh God, submitted- yes. A top 10 list. I could tell by item number three on the top 10 list whether we were going to be doing business. Yeah.
0: And mm-hmm. how did this top 10 list get started? How did that start?
3: Well, I uh, years and years ago, I mean, it certainly wasn't a new idea. Every publication in, in the world would feature, you know, top 10 hamburger recipes, top 10 comfortable shoes, on and on and on but getting back to you and and SNL so you, you <laughs> well you, we'll you, get
0: back to the okay uh, but here's something th- those else weren't I was funny the top 10 hamburger recipes they were handy hamburger recipes you had the <laughs> yeah i mean what, what was the formula what worked on the top 10 list what i mean well you,
3: i think i think it was uh, it would take something uh, of the news uh, something of uh, common awareness in american culture and it would be uh, top 10 things Dan Quayle did before he had breakfast. And then it would be like that. So that was the staple. And then, you know, we did them and did them and did them and did them to the point where nobody really wanted to do them anymore. And, and of course, the research said, oh, no, no, this is the <laughs> one thing people <laughs> like about the show. Oh.
0: Well, you had to keep doing them.
3: We had to keep doing them. Yeah, and, and everybody just was sick of them by about the first year because that's, you know, one a night for 240 shows. Well, that's plenty.
0: I remember you did one for me. Do you remember this? We have a a business roundtable kind of event every year in Minnesota, and you did one for me. Oh, yeah,
3: I do remember that, yeah. And it was the
0: top 10 bad names of uh, corporations in Minnesota, and it was like second Best Buy (laughs) and Whore Mel.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, big laughs around the uh, conference. Yeah, it, it
0: was huge. They couldn't believe I got you, first of all, yeah. but also mm-hmm. it was—they were like there were ten good jokes.
3: Well, we we had a pretty good run, uh, and then <laughs> like like everything else, you just. Kind of like, um, what about top 10 tasty hamburger recipes? You know, you just... Well, let me
0: ask you this. Were there... uh, How many on the staff? How many on the writing staff?
3: Oh, it must have been two, three (laughs) hundred.
0: And did you assign like 70 to the top 10? No. I I mean... uh, Every day, mm -hmm. a topic would be selected. Mm -hmm. We, We would have three possibilities.
3: Uh, and and the uh, the one we would choose would be um, Al Franken's top ten favorite shoes. Okay, and then they would go away, the writers, and then right before the show, we would get together, uh, the head writer and myself, and maybe one or two others, and we would uh, kind of uh, collate and just uh, pack together ten. And the the problem that we always seemed to suffer was i assume that the funniest one should be number 1 you you want to have to stop the tape and hose down the audience after number <laughs> 1 because people are laughing so hard as to now not seem human and then the other theory was nobody ever hears number 1 because the drum roll and the uh, fanfare explosion from the band subsumes number 1 that's wrong so that's yeah. wrong uh, number number one right. rarely, rarely was the the funniest bunch, but it was uh, a a thorn in everyone's side. On on the other hand, sometimes, likely could have been the funniest part of the entire week.
0: <laughs> you are you, um, kind of famously, I think, uh, are tough on yourself in terms of you know uh, reviewing your own. Own work, I think. Mm.
3: Well, how many people in the world of comedy or show business who seem to be their own champion that you know? There are there are, there are a number. There are a number, but I I mean, when, when you and Tom wanted to get something on SNL, did you walk into Lauren's office and say, uh, "Lauren, I don't care what you're doing now. Listen to this; it's the funniest thing you'll ever hear."
0: That's how we started every pitch. (laughs)
3: Oh (laughs) well gee i never thought of that
0: now we had read through you know but i mean we'd kick ideas around i mean you know this basically the schedule at snl was monday five o'clock meeting with the host tuesday you start writing like at 10 p.m (laughs) stay up all night and you know you go to read through on wednesday and you have this long read through
3: Were the read-throughs fun or frightening, anxiety-ridden and tedious, or were they fun and delightful?
0: Um, Both. I mean, both. They got longer and longer as I was there. When we first started, there were like, I don't know, 10 writers Mm. and seven cast members, right? And cast members, of course, write. And we had Dan Aykroyd wrote a lot, and Chevy wrote when he was there for the first year and a half, and uh, Gilda wrote with Zweibel a lot, and... But that's that's a limited number of people, and also we worked together, and we it got more and more tedious as the cast grew in size. Mm, and yeah. the, remember, I was there for the first five years, from uh, seventy-five to eighty. And I'm, we're talking about me now. This is great. I have David Letterman, and <laughs> but it got yes, it got uh, it got a little tougher as as these things got longer.
3: And and uh, let me, I'm sorry to jump around here, but when did you and Tom? or you start appearing on the show with any regularity? Uh,
0: Basically, right right from the beginning, Lorne uh, would put us in dress rehearsal, and if in uh, dress rehearsal a lot of sketches didn't work and Lorne needed to fill time, he put Franklin and Davis in the last 15 minutes of the air show uh, if he needed the time.
3: (laughs) Al, that's kind of a, a cool thing to have because there's no real pressure
0: and also the opportunity to be heroes. I, you know, it was basically we'd go in the dress, we'd do it, and the chances of us getting on were very low. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess it, it was a good place to be. And, uh, man, it was just exciting, that that show. Yeah. Who did you have the
3: most success writing for? Which of which the original cast members...
0: Did, were you uh, in, well, in? How did with, this happen? I mean, we did. got a David Letter uh, interview with David Letterman. Okay, let's let's move to you in a while. But I'll tell you, Aykroyd, of course, uh, uh-huh. was someone that Tom and I wrote with a lot. And yeah. uh, but you know that was a great friggin' cast. Everybody was great. Oh
3: yeah.
0: Okay. Here here's something I wanted to ask you about about comic sensibility. Um, you and I both share. We, we're, we we both love Bob and Ray.
3: Oh, Bob and Ray. Good Lord, Bob and Ray.
0: Yeah. And I remember once you said, I th- think you said it was either you or you were quoting your dad, that if someone doesn't like Bob and Ray, you have no time for them.
1: Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I think
0: that's the
3: case. Uh, I mean, didn't you feel that way, Al? I mean, Well, okay. first of all,
0: I don't know how many people listening to this know Bob and Ray. This is These guys were 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. and they're radio comedians. But Carson right. loved them. You saw him on The Tonight Show a lot. And you saw him on your show a lot. And yeah. Tom Davis and I just loved them. And, of course, Chris Elliott is Bob's uh, son.
3: He, Bob or Ray. No one ever knew
0: the paternity there. <laughs> I, um, I remember uh, Tom and I uh, came on your show, and uh, we did a bit that was very Bob and Ray. The uh, French restaurant Uh, uh, and uh, Tom played a guy had opened a fancy French restaurant in Shadron, Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) And I introduced him as Pierre Lafranc. And then he said, well, yeah, uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be on here. I go, "Okay, Pierre, that doesn't you don't sound like you have a French accent. Oh, no, I'm from Shadron. But uh I went to, to a fancy French restaurant in uh I you know, took a trip to uh Houston
4: <laughs>
0: and uh went to this great French restaurant called Abientaux du soir And I said, Uh huh, what what does that mean? And he says, I don't know. So I decided to open a fancy I loved the food, so I opened a fancy French restaurant in Chadron and I brought the menu and I said, Okay now what does menu actually mean in French? I know it's a French word. What does it mean? And he went, list of food. <laughs> okay, now that's as Bob and Ray as you can get, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> so about a week after we did this, there was a, Le- a Letterman Show Christmas party, and I see Bob is there, and I went up to him, and I said, you know, Tom and I did this. Oh, he said I saw that piece. And it was great. And I said, "Well, you know, it was really an homage to you guys." And he said to me, "Uh huh, you didn't say so." Oh, no, no, it was a joke. I see. It, it really see. was, but I mean it—it it was hilarious. I just laughed yeah. so hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh, you didn't say so. Good, <laughs> Bob. By the way. Well,
3: I, I my acquaintance with Bob and Ray um NBC Radio back in the days when radio was a different kind of thing, they would have a a service on the weekends called Monitor and it was NBC Monitor oh, yeah. and they would have half-hour shows they would have hour shows it would be news updates it would be interviews it would be profiles It's
0: kind of a high High tone show, yeah,
3: yeah, and it would be it would be all day Saturday and, and maybe Sunday. I don't know, but every hour or so, they would have a visit from Bob and Ray, mm-hmm. and they would do uh, <laughs> several comedy pieces during the day every weekend. And my dad and I became addicted to the little monitor sessions that these guys did, and that was probably the one thing he and I uh, really had in in common that was where where we both enjoyed it uh, at the same measure.
0: So I had an emotional thing for you as well, yeah.
3: Yeah, that's right. So Bob and Ray is uh, always—they were always more than just guys that were funny, but God, were they funny! And and then I remember they they worked for uh, Dick Cavett when he had his daytime show, and uh, Ali Baloo and all of that. (laughs) Ali Baloo here, uh, yeah, winner uh,
0: of eleven diction awards, two of mm -hmm. which are (laughs) cufflinks.
3: al wow, this is a remarkable impression
0: i I did a lot of listening to Bob and Ray, believe me yeah. and for listen for our my listeners here, what you can go to YouTube and listen to them and mm-hmm. i I would uh slow talkers of America oh
3: the slow talkers <laughs> of America, oh my goodness,
0: tell us your name, please Harlow. P. Whitcomb. And where are you from? From Glens Falls. New York? New York. And what do you do? I am the president And recording... Secretary. (laughs) Secretary. The
3: nice thing about the team is they would switch off. One guy would be the stooge one time, and then the other guy would be the stooge the other time. And uh, it always worked.
0: Man, oh man, oh man, oh man, they were were funny. Right,
3: And, and, and not worried about... Uh, Will this get a laugh? Not worried about uh, (laughs) taking their time. Uh, But just uh, two guys in suits, uh, absolutely steeped in confidence that their stupidity will out. (laughs) It was delightful. Chris Elliott, like you said, was Bob's son. And Chris Elliott was was on our uh, show many, many years. And one of the reasons we had uh, any success at all was was Chris Elliott.
0: He did the guy uh, under the stairs. So that was his yeah. character.
3: Yeah, and uh, and many many other things. But he was uh, just to have the genetic influence of Bob or Ray around was was great fun.
0: Yeah, and uh, just to have Chris Elliott, uh, brilliant brilliant uh, comedian. Uh, hilarious on your show, brilliant uh, in in movies and in, in in TV, and like Bob and Ray, uh, has that willingness uh, to to take his time, and and you know you were talking about on your show you you had patience, and you know I was a guest on your show a number of times, and I remember if you know I would do Leno right, and I would do some other. Uh, talk shows. There weren't many at the time, but I sort of remember preparing my stuff that on the other shows it was like, okay, get the, you know, joke in 15 seconds, 30 seconds. And you, I just felt so relaxed with you because I'm a little bit of a slow talker, I think. uh, And I would develop stuff with you and you were absolutely confident that, Things would work out okay <laughs> all the time. You were not worried about getting a laugh every 15, 30 seconds.
3: No, it's because of uh, now that didn't that didn't hold true across the board. But if I was dealing with somebody like yourself, or you and Tom Davis, then and andy uh, Andy Kaufman was the other one. You had uh, consummate confidence that you guys knew what you were doing, and you know it's like the self driving car. It was it was great because not only were you guys, great guests, but it was great fun for me as just somebody who who liked what mm-hmm. you did to, to watch it unfold. I remember the first thing that I saw you guys do on Saturday Night Live was you got my attention, and it was so you. It was the Franken and Davis show,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and um, the the voiceover uh, announcer, the legendary Don Pardo, Don Pardo, introduced it, and it it, it had uh, to uh, every outward trapping. Uh, Like a big important uh, here, here we we got something. (laughs) The Franklin and Davis show, and and one week it was sponsored by the Communist Party. Working for you in Africa, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And I just thought (laughs) these guys. Have nothing but guts, and I—that uh, uh, doubled me over.
0: Yeah, and thanks for having us on. And it, it, you know, it's unusual for a comedy team to come on because of the, the comedy the, team that weighs the same—that it was—that was one of the favorite things I've ever done. Tom, Tom and I came on your uh, on the show, and we pitched. That's what we wanted to do. We want <laughs> wanted to appear as the comedy team that weighs the same. Yeah, and Tom and I were within about eight pounds of each other. <laughs> and so that we we worked very hard to get exactly the same weight.
3: I had no idea you actually had to to, to, to achieve a steam bath, running, push-ups, sweatpants, anything to get to the same that weight. That was me. I had to
0: lose weight, and Tom had to gain weight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we decided to do this a few weeks before, like three weeks before. And I didn't check in with him until like a few days out and he hadn't gained any weight. <laughs>
3: well, there you go. And,
0: and he, you know, Tom was pretty slender and he just went, well, how do you gain weight? I don't know how to gain weight. Yeah. So it's I go, all well, eat, eat waffles, eat, you know, <laughs> and so, well, we got exactly, exactly the same weight. And so we did a weigh in, we, we wore robes mm-hmm. and underneath we had uh, speedos yeah we did weigh, and weighed exactly the same, and you asked us if there are any funny stories from being <laughs> that comedy team weighs the same, and well, uh yeah, we just went to uh a state fair, and you know the guy who guesses your weight <laughs> he saw us uh coming, and he couldn't believe it
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wow. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) that was that was uh, the kind of joke that you and I like.
3: In a world which one would think there's room for all manner of comedy, would anybody do that or that kind of bit today? The comedy team that weighs the same, you're not going to see that anywhere now, are you?
0: I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of people doing very conceptual comedy, so I'm I'm not sure about that, but you just don't see many teams. There was another joke in this where you go like, has any other comedy team weighed the same? And I said, well, you know, Stiller and Mira claimed they weighed the same, (laughs) but they never proved it. We're going to take a uh, short break. We're with David Letterman, and we'll be right back
4: with David What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year.
2: treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: We're back with David Letterman. Oh, I know. I I wanted to ask you about uh, something in uh, in 1985. Uh, SNL had kind of an off year, and uh, I remember getting a call from the TV critic of the Philadelphia Inquirer, and and she said to me, "Why don't you guys do risky material like Letterman does?" Yeah, and I said, "Well, you know, what, what are you talking about? What does Letterman do that you?" consider risky and she said well the monkey cam
3: uh the monkey cam yeah 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 and
0: i just said now the monkey cam for my listeners you had a chimpanzee you put you put a a tv camera attached to his head in a humane way i mean it was fine and he came out on a tricycle and then he got off the tricycle and he climbed Mm -hmm. up on the lights and you would Mm -hmm. cut to his camera and then cut to the wide. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, for the first time anywhere, the late night monkey cam mobile
3: unit, Zippy. Paul? Come here, Zippy. <laughs> Zippy. Come on over here and sit down, buddy. Sit down and we'll take a good look at you here. And now oh, come can you come over into this chair? Come on, Zippy. Come on over here, buddy. Alright, go over and see Paul. Go go say a little to Paul. Paul
0: calls Zippy over there. Zippy. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, Zippy. It was hilarious. Yeah, it was it was
3: hilarious uh, the first time, but like everything else, we, we you know did it a thousand times, and uh, it was funny the, every time. Well, it was funny until Thunder uh, Bernhardt was a regular uh, guest on our show because yes. she was uh, edgy and provocative and, and amusing, and, uh, was, and so she was like she f- fit our guest requirement perfectly and and uh you know popular and uh, she came out and then we turned the, the monkey cam loose on her and the monkey hopped up in her lap and bit her and uh, was that the last I've one not, I've not been not been bitten by a monkey but I don't want to be bitten by a monkey and she reacted like a woman who had been bit by a monkey <laughs> and, and, and she hopped up and down and oh, was shaking her hand and no. screaming and now the monkey is terrified and so we we have to get the monkey wrangler out there to subdue the monkey uh, in in a uh, uh, humane way, and uh, I think that was the end of the monkey cam. But
0: I think that might have been the end of the monkey. Do they?
3: Uh... No, the monkey still works. Monkey had his own show at Fox for a while. Okay. Brother, dear, like the poor, <laughs> poor deer was uh, rightfully upset with us.
0: Well, anyway, I told this critic that's not risky; that's sure fire. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and i'm explaining this to a tv critic yeah i've just substantiated that yeah <laughs> okay you're, you're
3: exactly right I'm, I'm gonna step out i'll be right back
0: david um hmm uh david has uh stepped out for a moment i'm um, uh, sure he'll be right back uh with with some explanation
3: okay i'm back I'll-
0: well that was quick what was that yeah I was a drink.
3: Well, I had a, I, a couple of days ago, I broke my nose, and now I'm kind of uh, suffering the after effects of that. But that's another podcast.
0: How did you do that? I know it's another uh, podcast. Of-
3: it was a, a, a hammer mishap.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so are you, like, handy? Are you a guy who uses a hammer a lot?
3: Yeah. I uh, uh, During a writer's guild strike uh, years ago, I took the time off and built my son a treehouse.
0: Oh, that was a good thing. See, that's that's the kind of thing people should have been doing and should be doing and are doing during COVID. They're doing stuff like that, learning carpentry.
3: Yeah, yeah, I did that, and then I I put a, another level on it, and and now it's three stories. It's a pretty massive structure, and uh, because when I was a kid, I had a treehouse, and I I loved it, and my friends and I would hide in the treehouse after school, and we kept the Playboy magazines up in the treehouse, and we would look at pictures, and and we, we would be uh, Every now and then we would get a hold of alcohol and take it up to the treehouse. And so I assumed that every kid wants a treehouse. So I built it this <laughs> monstrosity I I that's now listed in century 21. And uh, <laughs> my son and I, in the years that the treehouse has been up there, which is 20 now or more, he and I spent two nights, two nights in the treehouse. That was it.
0: Well, that is uh, OK. How badly did you break your nose?
3: Uh, enough that I had to excuse myself to take care of an accumulation of snot.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you're the first guest who's done that.
3: Well, I was hoping I would make some sort of uh, impression on your audience.
0: Um, Steve Allen. Yeah. I loved Steve Allen. I, I, I know you did. There were a number of things you did that were so... Um, I don't want to say you stole from Steve Allen. You didn't, you didn't, but...
3: No, we did. We absolutely <laughs> stole from him. Um, but uh, but I, I, I will say that as much as I love Johnny, when I was a kid watching Steve Allen, uh, there must have been something about what he was doing and the age I was watching that seemed to be just perfect. And we took many, many things from what he used to do and uh god it was uh I think you and I are talking about the same show. Oh
0: well like the Velcro I mean this is what what you did that was so reminiscent of him. Uh <laughs> the thing where you put Velcro on your chest or wrapped yourself yeah. in Velcro and yeah. we kind of jumped off a uh, a trampoline onto a Velcro wall right and stuck to it. <laughs> yeah that's correct. Uh, and the fizzies too, right?
3: Well, the the fizzies. The uh, uh, I th- I think Steve Allen was uh, it was dunked. I don't know I, something about tea. He was covered in tea bags, or did I? Anyway, he did something where he was immersed in a, a container of water, and it was either tea he made his own tea or something. And so from that, uh, I was in a suit of fizzies, which I don't I don't even know if people know what fizzies are now. I'd I'm not sure I know what they are now. Well,
0: it's onomatopoeia, or pia, I guess, uh, which is, the fizzies are exactly what they sound like. You put them in water, and they fizz, and they're flavored.
3: Oh, they were flavored. That's right. It was a drink. It was like a
0: drink, fizzies.
3: Oh, wait, no, no, I'm sorry. Alka-Seltzer.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes, it was Alka-Seltzer. Okay.
3: Yeah, it was an early, uh, um, we thought we had a medical breakthrough. uh, so we had the tank of water and the suit of Alka-Seltzer, and Steve O'Donnell, our head writer at the time, was going to try it out in rehearsal. And, <laughs> I and, know, Steve. And, and, yeah, very Brilliant. funny kid. Brilliant. Yeah. So he gets in the tank, and there was something about the the fizzy component of the Alka-Seltzer that um, subsumed the oxygen in the that area. And he, he nearly
2: suffocated. <laughs>
3: so oh. <laughs> just, just as he's about to lose consciousness, he indicates, get me out of this. And, and I think when we did it on, on the show, I had to have uh, a, an oxygen mask on.
0: Well, I, I would think that, I think it's CO2 that comes off.
3: Yeah, something like that. But it, but, but it, it, it eliminates the breathable air. Uh, or makes it dense with CO two, so you have nothing to breathe. Yeah, you're
0: breathing. I mean, you're breathing CO two is basically, yeah. and you can't yeah. do that. No, for too long. And
3: it's, uh, again, it's like a, everybody's having a good time till the head writer is dead. You
0: know, okay. <laughs> oh my God! That I never. <laughs> I did not hear that story. <laughs> yeah. Oh my lord, that's funny. So speaking of writers, just Jim Downey. Let's talk about him. Brilliant, brilliant writer that wrote for you for a number of years, but also, you know, was a SNL uh, writer. Uh,
3: Jim Downey. uh, We talk about the World Championships of Comedy. He also would be on the podium, Uh, and and we uh, Lorne Michaels, at a certain point in his SNL um, leadership, decided to step away.
0: Yeah, that was uh, 1980. Uh, The first iteration of the show with Lorne was uh, 75 to 80. And then I left and came back in 85. I was a a Lorne again writer, is what what we called it. So he he was gone. And many of
3: his uh, writers, Jim Downey included, and uh, 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 Tom and Max.
0: Max Pross and Tom Gamble.
3: That's correct and others came came to our show which was a what a what a lovely benefit that was and the uh, the head writer uh was uh Jim Downey and uh, again just a 10 second chat with Jim uh was maybe the funniest thing that you would experience all week it was uh he was and is still delightful He's, is he still on uh, on staff there
0: uh no no uh jim left about 4 or 5 years ago Jim and I wrote a lot of the political stuff together, and he always had this, I love this, he said um, that we should write uh, to reward people for knowing stuff, but not punish them for not knowing.
3: Yeah, that's, that's uh, pretty high-minded and, a, and a, narrow, a narrow line to walk, but God bless him.
0: Well, no, and you can accomplish that, and I, I really felt that we, th- that's what we tried to do all the time yeah and uh, also we tried to be uh, Jim's kind of conservative, and so we tried to be not partisan. I thought that was that was right for when we did that mm-hmm. in that time. Mm-hmm. Jim wrote probably the sketch that got George W. Bush elected, <laughs> uh, which was that debate uh-huh. uh the gore Bush debate, which unfortunately, you know, everybody knew Bush was challenged in terms of language and stuff like that, so you could make fun of that. And strategery, by the way, is Jim right. Downey's invention. That was not something that Bush had actually said.
3: Oh, that's fantastic. So he actually never uttered the word strategery.
0: No, no, no. It was like, can you sum up, <laughs> you know, your campaign in one word? Mm-hmm. It got to Will Farrell and he went, strategery. <laughs> and then to... uh I guess it was D- Daryl uh, Hammond was Lockbox, and the unfortunately everybody knew kind of the caricature lease of W, which was kind mm-hmm. of challenged in terms of language and stuff, a little little thick, but not the kind of super silliness of Gore. And I love Gore, I, I really do. And he's a hero to me, and on climate and on so many things, so many things. But I I really believe that. The whatever that was, 500 and some votes in Florida, that that debate. I mean, there are a lot of things. Anytime it's that close, there's a lot of things. But I do think Downey handed that election to, uh, to George W. Bush with uh, that I sketch.
3: Mean, you, you, you referenced close elections. You yourself uh, are the veteran of that war.
0: Yeah, I, I won by 312 votes out of uh, 2.9 million, and— it was a long process, uh, wh- which is why I I knew all along that the outcomes in in, in Georgia and Arizona just they just weren't going to change. And you know why we went through what we went through was just uh, so ridiculous and and uh, sad, really. And and you know we I know you care a lot about politics and uh, and well you care about our country and you care about democracy yes.
3: and, and, and and but I, I that focus has been fine-tuned thanks to my friendship with you i'm not sure you can tune a focus but nonetheless you know what i'm saying
0: i think you can i think that was okay. close to being something people say in english i remember coming on your show and making the distinction between you and me saying i'm a satirist and you're a clown i'm a, cl- I'm a clown
3: yes and it, I, I hear that and think of that, and it still makes me laugh. Now, <laughs> uh, if we can just jump back to, to uh, uh, Jim Downey. When he was the head writer, he was in, in charge of hiring people to write on the show. And there was a fellow from Chicago who <clears throat> later went on to uh, be a mainstay on The Simpsons, which, which many people from SNL and from our show <clears throat> would do. He would send, in those days, postcards to Jim with jokes on them, uh, hoping to be hired as a writer, so Jim liked him well enough. You probably know the man's name; it escapes me at this. Schwartzwelder. Point. Yes, sir, that's him. And uh, yeah, so John Schwartzwelder. invited him, he invited him <laughs> to come to New York City for an interview. So after the show, uh, Jim and uh, the Mister Schwartzwelder uh, come into Schwartz-Welder. my Schwartzwelder. Schwartzwelder. Oh, I'm thinking of a different guy then. Uh, <laughs> Yeah,
0: Schwartzfelder was horrible as a he's not NF. They they come up to my
3: office and uh, the kid from Chicago is uh, smoking a cigarette and he's got a cocktail. Now this is unusual uh, when for a writing interview, but nonetheless, (laughs) um, that was him. Yeah, and I think he had his feet up on my desk, which that was fine. So he he leaves. Big
0: guy too, big guy.
3: Yes. And yeah. uh, I don't know what his background was, uh, but uh, Jim Downey loved him. And uh, so we're talking and he said, well, what what did you think of him? And I said, well, uh, honestly, he, he scared me. And, <laughs> and uh, Jim, Jim says, okay, well, we can't hire a guy that you're afraid of. <laughs> I, I always admired that. <clears throat> but the, the joke that closed the deal for Jim, mm-hmm. he sends to Jim on a postcard and I'm going to use your name, uh, Al Franken's efforts to break every Guinness uh, Book of Record record uh, got off to a slow start when his recording of White Christmas sold 40 copies. <laughs> I always thought, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I should have, I should have not been afraid of him.
0: And he became really a mainstay. He wrote on SNL for a season or two, or co- uh-huh. and really great. But he was a real mainstay at uh, The Simpsons. Really, one yeah. of the big powerhouses there. And uh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah.
3: <laughs> okay, so that's that's what I wanted to add about uh, Jim's uh, tenor. Well, our, that's a great
0: story. story. I never heard that story.
3: Yeah, pretty funny
0: joke. Um, let's see. Worst kind of guest, who are the, you know, you were, how many years did you do? 30-some years, right?
3: Yeah, 30-something, yeah. Yeah.
0: After doing, I mean, there must be some, you know, some little commonalities of, uh, I'm now out here with the worst kind of guest. What would that be?
3: Well, in the in the beginning, it was a flip of a coin, because in the beginning, the first couple of years, the first five years maybe, there were many, many, many people on the show that I knew nothing about. And so anybody that I knew nothing about, I was automatically timid about because I felt like I will only demonstrate my vast ignorance and make a fool of myself with this person I know nothing about. And so it's hard to say that they were bad guests, it's just that they were in the hands of, uh, to, to be flattering, a beginner,
0: yeah. And then this is, remember, this is the late night show. This is after Carson. You're following. Yeah,
3: Carson. that's right. Yeah. We had to follow Johnny Carson. So I'm I'm thinking, well, if you really wanted to see a show, you'd be in bed by now and you would have been watching Johnny for an hour. I, I used to, I used to think that Andy Rooney was a bad guest and uh, you know, he really wasn't a bad guest. He was just Andy Rooney. And, and I didn't know what to do with him. And, and I always felt like my responsibility was to try to make something funny out of the conversation, Andy Rooney didn't quite see it that way. He, uh, <laughs> he was there. I don't know why he was there, but was, did he make
0: him. observations there? Like,
3: yeah, he made observations, and he and I dearly <laughs> loved the guy because i had I had followed his career when he was uh, in the old days on network television. They would actually do hour long documentaries in prime time, and <clears throat> many times Andy Rooney would write and uh, star and host these documentaries. And he, his wry sense of of humor and uh, irony and sarcasm was delightful, irrespective of of the uh, topic. So I had great admiration for him, but I just uh, bungled it when he came on. And uh, so it was
0: your fault.
3: It was my clearly my fault. But you know, like you do in show business, I chose to blame him.
0: So did you from the show? <laughs> no, he,
3: he was very good natured about it. He uh, he came back and. Uh, I remember on the uh, the CBS show, he and I wrestled uh, something that would be near and dear to your heart. Um, so he was in the down position and I was in the up position and it was the, you know, okay, wrestle.
0: I, I was a high school wrestler is what David's for him. Well, Medi- yeah, a very I'm, I'm, I'm mediocre high school wrestler. I
3: didn't, didn't mean to suggest you were in the WWE.
0: <laughs> or that I like to wrestle Andy Rooney. Yeah, but who who was it
3: you challenged <laughs> to a fight in a parking garage?
0: Oh, yeah, that was uh, Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry is uh, the editor, publisher, whatever he is, of National Review. And I saw him on C-SPAN, and he said that uh, the Democrats were sissifying politics. Uh-huh. And so I challenged him to a fight. <laughs> I called no. him up and challenged him to a fight. He was a little puzzled. He said, where would this fight be? And I said, I, in my parking garage. Uh-huh. We both lived in New York at the time. Yeah. And he said, what would the rules be? And I said, well, you know, there are really no rules, but once, until someone gives up. Yeah. And then the guy who gives up has to give, like, $3,000 to whatever the mm-hmm. other guy wants him to. And he said, can I think about it? <laughs> And then he called me the next day and said that he had chosen not to.
3: Now, you wanted wanted that to happen, though, right?
0: I more or less wanted to shame him for saying Democrats are sissifying politics. It was so funny. Like, I told my son. I think he was like, oh, 15, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so I I told him I did this. And he goes, oh, God, Dad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he said, what if he said, yeah? And I said, I, I'd beat him. You know, I was a wrestler, you know, I, I could beat up Rich Lowry. And so we're watching uh, McNeil Lehrer. Jim Lehrer is doing one of a segment with Rich Lowry. And so I went, Joe, 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 there's the guy I was going to, you know, fight. And he comes in and it's it just cuts to Jim Lehrer. Uh. And he goes, like, <laughs> He goes, like, Dad, he's, like, 70 years old. And <laughs> I went, no, 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 wait.
3: Wow. Now, now the, the, the way that would have happened, the two of you would have fought, you would have uh, dominated, and then the two of you would have become best friends for the effort.
0: We've actually became good friends. I said, okay, let's go to lunch. Mm-hmm. So after he said I, I've chosen, you know, I've decided not to. I said, okay, let's go to lunch. Although we completely disagree on politics, but I really like him.
3: When you were in Washington, did you ever challenge anyone else to a fight?
0: No, That's I felt too- that was inappropriate for a senator.
3: Oh, I don't know.
0: Well, you know, I represented the people of Minnesota, and uh, I felt that if I challenged. <laughs> you know, Ted Cruz to a fight.
3: Al, do you think that it's possible, and I noticed this with uh, people who would come on my old show who had been in public office and now out of public office and were actually able to do more for the good of the populace uh, out of office than they were in. Have you experienced that feeling?
0: I've done uh, some different kinds of stuff that I couldn't have have done in the Senate. That's good. But I I have to admit, I... uh, I love that job and and I and I miss it. Yeah. Okay. I haven't covered the. Are are you going to continue doing? uh, My next guest needs no introduction.
3: Yes. Yes. Uh, It's been a lovely experience for me. Uh, I can't speak for the viewers, but it's uh, it's been great. It's been great fun, and it's.
0: um, I really enjoy the show. So there.
3: Thank you, Al. It's it's fun because you get a chance to w- w- when with the old show the interviews were like you do five minutes you do four minutes and, and then I would always run along about five minutes and that that would be it but but here I can I can just talk all day and uh, when that happens you at least for me you you learn things from these people and every person that I've talked to in this uh, brief run of shows have been people from from whom I have learned things about life and uh, their experience. And I find that invaluable. And and uh, I, I keep thinking back to when I was in college and everybody has an experience like this, that there was a person, maybe two people in the four-year experience, or in my case, depending on who you believe, five years, that, that they said something or did something that, that stayed with you and affected the rest of your life. And I, I keep wondering if Somebody in one of these shows that we have done will say something or do something or allude to something that affects somebody watching in that way, and and uh, and plus it's just fun, you know. It's just it's nothing but fun. It's not every day, and uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it a great deal.
0: Yeah, it's not the pressure. <laughs> yeah, that's very right. and, and I feel, yeah. I
3: feel lucky uh, to to be a part of uh, Netflix. They've been nothing but supportive and uh, so it's yeah it's it's all been a great experience for us
0: well, what's the name netflix let me write that down netflix they come they get a little cardboard folder
3: uh, if you order say you want to watch um, <laughs> dumb and dumber uh huh you call up the operator they give you the netflix number and you tell them and they'll say you want dumber dumber 1 you want dumber dumber 2 you want dumber dumber 3 and you, uh, you you get all three and, uh-huh. they, and they okay. send uh,
0: uh, DVDs?
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they will send those out to you. They take about 10 mm-hmm. days. huh. And uh, you have a DVD player?
0: Uh, yes, yes, yeah. I do.
3: Mm-hmm. All right, put them in there. Now, be careful when you're finished because those discs, when they come out of that machine, are red hot. So remove them with oven mids.
0: Okay, well, thanks for the tip.
3: Yeah, enjoy.
0: Right. Oh, I haven't asked you about Schaefer, Paul Schaefer. Okay, Paul, uh, Paul, I've known Paul since the first year of Saturday Night Live.
3: He was uh, also an original on Saturday Night Live. First first season veteran.
0: Yeah, and a uh, great friend, great guy. He took an approach, which was the sort of showbiz hipster. Would that mm-hmm. be fair? Mm-hmm, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. He loved show business, uh, and uh, the, the worse the show business, the more he loves it. Yeah. <laughs> That's true.
0: That's true. And and it's sort of a thing he shares with Marty Short.
3: That's right. And and many people also.
0: <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That is true. When he was a kid
3: living in Thunder Bay, they the parents, Canada, mom it's... and dad, yes, would take him there was some resort across the border in Minnesota. Maybe you know what it is. And they would they would see, you know, a big you know, big musical acts uh, and big comedic acts from uh, Los Angeles. And then uh, I think they would also take him to, to Las Vegas when he was a kid. So he was uh, steeped in this particular uh, kind of show business early on. And I think that was the formative times for him and it stayed with him
0: and a brilliant musician. And of course, a
3: a genius, just a genius. And uh, you know, for like 28 years, he was the musical director for the, uh, the rock and roll hall of fame orchestra and uh, I never saw him break a sweat in the 30 years he was working. And he, he, the, the thing that gratifies me about my friendship with Paul, uh, via the show, he had the opportunity to work with people he loved and admired. And he has those memories and he talks about them uh, regularly. And uh, I feel like, well, geez, I was able to help him do that. Uh, I, that makes me feel good about that relationship.
0: Oh, my God. He worked with so many iconic, everybody. iconic uh, yeah, uh, musicians that came on your show. And very often uh, he would uh, arrange something where, where the, your band would play with them and yeah. or, or people from the band. And it was uh, amazing. He, he
3: has great stories about uh, one of his favorites was working with James Brown. Oh. And he, he talks... Uh, at length and lovingly about the having uh, James on the show and w- what that was and, you know, things that uh, James Brown said to him. And that's eh, just great, you know, uh, and and he's he's a guy who collects stories. And the fact yes. that he's got his own uh, encyclopedia of stories makes it even better.
0: Yeah. And and uh, I just mentioned Marty Short, also Canadian. So we we're talking a lot about yeah, funny Short, Canadians. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. He's kind of like one of your go-to guests. That it's always an event when he when he's on.
3: He was great. It, it was great and is great. And uh, a, a lot of people and and uh, would 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 come on and uh, okay, I, I I can only be here seven minutes and I can only be there a minute before showtime and then I have to leave and don't touch me and don't let Dave talk. And Marty Short would come in and Steve Martin was the same way. And they would come in and they would go over with the writers what they wanted to do and then they would write it up and then they would rehearse it and then they would come in and perform it. And they re- they really committed to being uh, a guest on my show. They they All they needed to do was sit down in the chair, but they went beyond that and uh, people loved them, you know, people like that that would do it. And there were quite a few, Bill Murray and Tom Hanks and uh, uh, Steve Martin and, and Marty and
0: Well, Steve and Marty have a a two-man show. I mean, COVID has put, uh, you know, they can't do it now, but they were touring with the show. Brilliant, brilliant show. But the thing is, the work ethic, both of them, but Steve, it's crazy.
3: Yes, and I think he, uh, to invoke the word genius, is limiting what he has accomplished with his career. The fact that he has sustained his output and his uh, work and performance at such a, a high level, his entire career, uh, I think, puts him in a the, the upper echelons of genius is what I was trying to know No,
0: and, and, you know, I saw their show twice, and I saw it toward the beginning of the run that they were doing, and then I saw it maybe, I don't know, a year and a half later. Uh, it had evolved, and you could tell, you know, I mean, it, it just, I loved it the first time, but uh, somehow it got even funnier, which is hard to do. Uh, but I saw, oh, my God, he just works this every night.
3: The combination is great. You know, uh, Marty and, and Steve, they, they really complement one another. And uh, uh, I saw it once. I was part of it once and just dumbstruck at what, what they did. And the night that I did the show, uh, I, I get to uh, San Antonio. And it's 190 degrees, and I'm walking around San Antonio looking at the uh, Alamo, and I go into the theater, and it's about 3:30, and uh, there's Marty and there's Steve on stage, and you walk out of the blistering heat into the theater, and uh, uh, Marty comes up to me and he says, uh, "I think uh, I think Steve may be a little anxious today," and I said, "Oh, good Lord, why?" and he said, "Well, um, I don't know why, but he has the hiccups, and they won't go away," and he said. it it has only happened to him a couple of times in his life and it's a manifestation of some sort of anxiety and i said oh jesus so then i go over and i say hi to steve and sure enough it's (laughs) and and you think of every now and then you read about a kid in new zealand who's had hiccups for 30 years and you think oh god is this are we on the beginning of this so we, we do the rehearsal and steve excuses himself and goes back to the hotel and, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. And then I've also heard that this is sometimes happens just before a stroke. So m- now I'm anxious. And so Marty keeps coming in with <laughs> updates about Steve. <laughs> and uh, so at Showtime, Steve comes back. Oh, thank God. He took a nap and the, the hiccups dissipated.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you read Steve's book, Born Standing Up, you kind of get the sense that Steve is complicated, <laughs> uh,
3: but I, you know, I, uh, of course everything comes back to me and I read the book and I thought, Jesus, I would just get on stage at the comedy store for five minutes, try out one joke and they get my two free drinks and go home. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> Steve knew and, and was writing and was doing and I thought, holy God, if I'd known it was that difficult, I never would have left Indianapolis. I'd be in Minneapolis now in a diner, doing the weather.
0: I know, but you worked extremely hard.
3: Uh, no, I did Yes, no. you did. I mean, this is the hardest I've worked in years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you, you don't have a uh, late-night show, and I know that uh, you probably regret... What you did to your family, <laughs> but Harry turned out pretty good, huh?
3: Harry's a uh, fine Harry. Um, much to my surprise, is is quite fond of the academic pursuit. Oh, good. Which, which, yeah, which I never was. So I'm very, very pleased about that.
0: Well, yes, you you uh, that wasn't your your thang, as the kids say. No,
3: not my thing. Not your not thang. thing.
0: But uh, you did okay. You did okay, and I'm looking forward to the next season. What, are you guys? Are you just not going to tape any of these until COVID's over?
3: Or? We did four the last time around. We did two, and then the, uh, the the virus started to spread, so we shut down. And then there were we found ways to uh, safely do the remaining two in that little pod of shows, uh, but it, it, logistically it was was difficult as it has been for everyone beyond logistics, by the way.
0: Here's something I've thought of. Are there more people who don't need an introduction coming into existence than the pace of your interviews? Because
3: That's a good question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that a question you've asked yourself?
3: Well, we're constantly in touch with the Bureau of Weights and Measures. And they told us that there are now about 40 people left who actually don't need <laughs> that's about 40. Uh, you know you never know what's going to happen but right around 40 is the number they have
0: Oh, that, that that's enough and then by the time you get through them there'll be some others
3: well you don't know I mean it, the number goes up if you count the royal family uh, but I, I don't like to put them in. I think that throws the index off
0: wow that would be a good interview though the queen, really? the queen.
3: Well, yeah, the queen. I'll take all of the queen we can get for God's sakes. Yes,
0: I know what I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have always considered you a broadcaster mm-hmm. as opposed distinct from a late night host, and you're both, you were both, but uh, I felt that uh, you were an important broadcaster, and mm-hmm. I think one of the best examples of that was 9 11. I remember I went down to the site and I remember just a couple days after and I remember a firefighter who lost some brethren said to me, Letterman has to come back. He actually said this to me. Hmm. I, I can't remember how long it was before you did, but you did it. And it was just a very brilliant healing uh perfectly pitched uh moment in broadcasting history i think and well thank you yeah and it was really important and it, it was perfect and i wish i could remember to, you know exactly what you said and i don't remember actually but i just remember that
3: well it's it's nice of you to remember the moment i don't remember exactly what i said it was one of those circumstances where, if I was going to come back and continue what I had been doing, I knew that this was uh desperately necessary, and what was needed was was some sort of how do you address it? do you address it positively do you do you address it regrettably do you uh, have a serious or sinister tone about it or an uplifting tone and i I think it was just one of those moments where I was able to uh, satisfy the expectation. Uh, and I, I don't know what more to tell you about it than that. Welcome to The uh, Late Show. Uh, this is our first show uh, on the air since uh, New York and Washington uh, were attacked. And uh, I, I need to ask your uh, patience and, and indulgence here because uh, I want to say a few things. And uh, believe me, sadly, I'm not going to be saying anything new And in the past week, uh, others have said what I will be saying here tonight far more eloquently than I'm equipped to to do. But uh, if we are going to continue to do shows, um, I just need to hear myself talk for a couple of minutes. And so um, that's what I'm going to do here. Um, It's terribly sad here in in New York City. Uh, We've lost 5,000 fellow New Yorkers, and you, you can feel it. You can feel it. You can see it. It's terribly sad. Terribly, terribly sad. Uh, I, I think we went back on the air the Monday after the the Tuesday attack. You know, Howard Stern, by the way, was on the air through the whole thing. And uh, he sent me, I asked him to send me the tapes of that day. And it's it's fascinating because in the beginning, it's, it's Howard Stern doing his Howard Stern show. And oh, something's happened downtown. And And there was a half an hour of speculating uh, what had happened downtown. And then you you have the whole history of it there on his show. And I'm surprised somebody hasn't, and maybe somebody has taken it and used that as the core of a a, a documentary. Uh, But I I, I always thought that, and I didn't know this and didn't even think about this till years and and years later. And he was nice enough to send me the whole show. And uh, I mean, there's a perspective that, is was a living, breathing account of of that day, uh, and I think that would make a fascinating show.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, he is a, a fascinating broadcaster himself, and has
3: he's, he's wonderful, isn't he? I mean, you do you have a friendship with uh, Howard?
0: Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> not a close friendship, but I really l- I like him. I admire, you know, the transition he's made, and mm-hmm. um, no, he's also uh, an amazing broadcaster himself
3: yes and and a, a nice fellow
0: yep yep okay speaking of that uh you've been incredibly nice to me in so many ways and i appreciate that
3: i uh, i have to thank you uh because of you al this um election cycle i was a- I knew what to do and i was able to do it and i remember it's because of you going way back on martha's vineyard years ago at a, uh, at a fundraiser in somebody's backyard. And we got to do that again and again, different places. So I was not afraid when people would ask me if, if I could participate in things like that. So I did uh, a few things like that for this election cycle and found it really, really gratifying. So uh, my interest uh, and activity in politics is largely due to our friendship. So thank you for that.
0: All right, man. Thank you. Um, this is, uh, I think it's going to be a a really good one for a change.
3: I think this is going to be an eight part thing.
0: <laughs> anyway, so um uh listen, thank you. We'll,
2: thank you. Al. We'll
0: edit out uh we'll, we'll edit this to make you seem funny.
3: Thank you. Okay. You get your work cut out for you there, my friend. <laughs>
0: well, I I hope you enjoyed uh listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.
2: This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt no compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.
5: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator